Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jane Bartlett. As regular listeners will be aware, I record my program from home and for the past couple of weeks I've been experiencing computer problems which, of course, are that intermittent type. Several texts have isolated it to my internet provider and I'm awaiting a visit to locate and rectify the problem which results in an occasional metallic noise in the background of interviews. So... I hope that you can persevere. Back to those interviews. Paul Hayward-Smith from the Adelaide Group Australian Friends of Palestine Association will be talking about Hamas and why the Australian government must reverse its decision to name it as a terrorist organisation. Nick Rose is, amongst other things, the Executive Director of Sustain. But today he's in the middle of a very busy month and it's Urban Agriculture Month, and he'll be explaining how you can get involved as well. Journalist Jim Beetson has been following events on Bougainville for decades and travelled there and worked during the devastating war and blockade in the late 20th century. He's written a history of Bougainville, and you'll hear that today. The Brazilian elections were held last week, the former president, Luiz Inácio da Silva, Lula, has scraped through with a 1.8% majority. Journalist and author Fred Fuentes will be explaining what this small majority could mean for Lula's presidency. But let's not forget, Mr Kevin Healy is here to talk about his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when let's start with this week's inadvertently underpaid workers' report, the overwhelming difficulties traversing the labyrinth that is awards and conditions, highlighted yet again as salt, sugar and fat contributed to public health, dominoes how to market rubbish, and Melbourne Uni inadvertently underpaid workers, albeit by as little as millions and millions of dollars. Week after week, we learn how difficult it is for caring employers to get their pay systems correct, forcing the poor employers to repay millions and millions, showing how greedy and avaricious are workers and evil unions when a bit of sympathy for their bosses would not go astray. They've been paid. Okay, okay, a little less, well, maybe more than a little less than they should have been paid, but look to the future, not the past. Sympathy that would not go astray, unlike the millions they're owed. Why, if they had been over, inadvertently overpaid, would the caring employers ask them to pay it back? Of course not. Well, probably not, because we've not had an example to test it. The, the difficulties pay departments encounter obviously force them to underpay 100%, overpay 0%, and the new Socialist Party Caring Business Class Relations Bill will do nothing to make caring employers' lives better, let me tell you. Although I don't have to tell you. The caring employers themselves have explained with their renowned logic that a bill the government claims will contribute to higher wages and improved conditions will in fact make workers worse off 
and indeed will cost jobs and destroy the fine balance of the delicate flower that is the economy. The Productivity Commission, a neutral expert on these matters, warned that multi-employer bargaining achieved much lower productivity than single-employer bargaining, in which caring employers and lazy, avaricious workers sit down as equals and reach a win-win agreement. And we all know that, one, productivity is the secret to solving the problem of slow wages growth, and two, we have proof. We have seen over many years how single employer bargaining has done so much to improve workers' lives. The win-win the employing class eulogises. Apart from failing to improve wages and conditions, which shows how workers are just not being productive enough. Sadly, that commie long-haired breakaway evil union, the retail and fast food workers evil union, wants to make things even worse for workers, criticising the relaxation of the boot, the better off overall test, in the bill, claiming it will allow caring employers to exploit workers, showing how removed from reality is this evil union. As if caring employers would exploit workers. According to out-of-control union boss, unlike good real bosses, evil boss, Josh Covenan, the wording of the legislation means caring employers could make their future workforce forces worse off, leading to, how's this for nonsense, rotten deals, millions of low-paid workers will have billions of dollars stripped from them. A classic case of class envy where there is no class other than in the minds of people like Josh Cullinan. Thankfully, he was put in his place by one of the great minds and weak that was favourite, True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group Supremo Innes will cost the workers, who accused him of jumping at shadows. The bill sensibly proposes that the commission's application of the boot would be focused on working arrangements. Approval of agreement should not be delayed by concerns over entirely hypothetical scenarios. Doesn't Innes talk sense? And if Innes agrees the legislation allowing some workers to be worse off under the better off overall test is a positive, non-hypothetical scenario, not jumping at shadows, and an out-of-control evil union boss disagrees, we know who to trust. And I apologise for referring to the employing class, which could suggest there are class differences in our classless society. Sorry, Innes. On a positive front, the government has already indicated it could amend the dangerous legislation to appease caring employers' concerns, and we know we can look forward to a highly intelligent debate, exemplified by comments from Senator Jackie Lumpen. Give more power to unions? Seriously? Seriously a worry. Jackie Lumpen, working class woman, former train killer, cannon fodder who, who deifies train killing and train killers, abraded by unions having more power. A deep comprehension of the issues, so we look forward to an intelligent academic debate. It's distressing how evil unions continue to paint caring employers as exploiters, despite caring employers constantly telling us their sole raison d'etre is to create jobs and provide incomes for dear little families and increase wages if only they could solve the problem of slow wages growth. And then if there is a little profit at the end of it, so be it. Yet, that Josh Cullinan again, as an ethical fashion report by a dear baby Jesus Church, showed that one in ten clothing brands pay a living wage, obviously indicating those workers are not productive enough, all they have to do is pull their fingers out, 
Josh Cohen complained about fashion retailers requiring workers to buy and wear current fashions at their own expense, which, wait for this, he claimed was unlawful. This wage theft is costing low-paid workers millions of dollars. It's scandalous, he raved. What's scandalous, Josh, is you're interfering in a win-win relationship between those caring employers and their workers they so care about. And the employers explained buying the latest product as a uniform is only encouraged. Uh, so, so if they don't, then they are free not to. It's up to them if they want to keep their job. See? Freedom of choice. Emphasising again how threatening this caring business class relations bill is, a couple of recent editorials in the totally unbiased, objective, true blue Aussie capitalist review headlined, Workplace Bill is Captured by the Past, IR Agenda Going Backwards on Productivity Pay, and on another matter, another headline, Winding Back the Stage 3 Tax Cuts, A Backward Step showing how dangerous would be a wage rise for lazy avaricious workers and how progressive would be putting more wealth into the pockets of the not lazy, not avaricious, indeed altruistic, filthiest rich of the filthy rich. See? Common sense, balance, win-win yet again. One capitalist review journal wrote a think piece arguing lower taxes for the filthy rich would mean they would no longer avoid paying tax. A major admission on one hand, but also hands up anyone who thinks lowering taxes would mean the filthy rich would actually pay some. Told you it was a think piece. Speaking of the proud profession of train killing, good to see us giving any enemy of the US, of the UN, of the US of the world, a few extra targets to nuke as we add US of nuclear bombers to the Marines, send in the Marines, marauding our north to our long-term target Pine Gap. Four Corners Monday told us how we are being kept safe as the US of, and therefore True Blue Aussie prepare for train killing, war games just everywhere, and I was impressed by shots of US of and two Blue train killers preparing to defend us by rampaging through bush with huge tanks bulldozing trees. Obviously, flora collateral damage. Encouraging to note the difference with the Socialist Government as Minister for Being Offensive and Train-Killing Richard Duffer replaces Caring Business Class Minister for, Minister for Constable Peter Malls the Bad Guys, or uh, is that, oh, never mind, the, the big difference is one still has some hair and the other one doesn't. In common, they seem to spend a lot of time scratching an itch as they itch to go to. I'm old enough to recall when hair was a musical, rock, rock musical as they called it, about flowers in your hair, peace, love, anti-train killing and one hit wonder Scott McKenzie. If you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. Now, thanks to the trillions of dollars keeping us safe, be sure to wear a flak jacket. The US of urged Brazilians to respect the ballot box and accept Lula, the long-haired commie elected, even though the losers know he didn't really win. Leave undermining the new government to us, they assured them. And lovers of peace also cheering the result of the latest bi-monthly Zion election, with one probable coalition party providing the solution guaranteed to guarantee peace. Get rid of the displaced Palestinian non-land non-people altogether for putting up barriers to peace like wanting a little bit of land, with extremist terrorists even wanting back the land from which Zion displaced them. So peace is now so much closer. 
confirming the sensitivity with which our, oh, sorry, police, police our indigenous people, the Western Trublawazi forces of law and order supremo declared indigenous schoolboy Cassius Turby had been in the, you know, like, wrong place at the wrong, like, you know, time. So obviously his murderer, or sorry, alleged murderer, there must be a possibility he bashed himself to death, his alleged murderer was in the right place at the, you know, like, right time. All of this while an ongoing coroner's inquiry in northern Trublawazi illuminates the cultural and racist, racist, sorry, sorry, racial awareness of the constabulary. The second rung of health advisers, public health officials, have warned we face another wave of COVID infections with yet another strain. But good news, governments will act on the advice of the first rung of health advisers, the sundry chambers of profits who assure us if we burn our masks, do not isolate or stay at home, if we catch COVID, go to work no matter how unwell we feel, go shopping and spend, 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 their economic health will thrive. Although they do warn the dead that they should not go to work. Oh, and finally, second-rung medical officials, public health officials, would, um, what would, uh, what would they know? Don't let them provide daily update reports which could undo our faith in the above sensible health advice. Good afternoon. And you've been listening to Mr. Kevin Healy with his week that was. And I believe it's true too that Kevin has been doing that week that was for over 30 years. And how he remembers all those names, I don't know. That is very clever. And you can hear more of Kevin tomorrow morning on 3CR 8.55am or digital, or you can go to 3cr.org.au, listen streaming, or click into the podcast for for many of the programs on 3CR. But tomorrow morning, it's City Limits, and that's on at 9am. Mr. Kevin Healy. From November 11th to 13th at Catalyst Social Centre, NAM's newest radical community space, comes Catalyst Festival, a weekend of connection and resistance. There'll be workshops and talks on decolonisation, alternatives to police, and queer and trans parenting. Performances from Sky Belly, Double Doll String Band, and Race Rage, plus films, food, and more. Full program and more info at tinyurl.com forward slash Catalyst Fest program. Catalyst Festival this weekend at Catalyst Social Centre, 146 Sydney Road, Coburg. Catalyst Social Centre is a 3CR supporter. Kofias are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kofias and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kofia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. 
a 3CR supporter. When is a Onafari resistance group, terrorist organisation? When that group is resisting Israeli illegal occupation of its land and committing war crimes? When is a state supported by Australia and other Western nations, named by an increasing number of highly respected human rights organisations, including its own, as an apartheid state, allowed to suppress and kill those it occupies? This is a situation for Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem and an Australian support group, FOPA, is calling for the new Australian government to overturn its listing of Hamas as a terrorist organisation. And this call was published recently in the excellent public policy journal, Pearls and Irritations, written by the initial chairperson of FOPA, a recently retired Adelaide QC, or should we say KC, Paul Hayward-Smith. First, Paul, just establish who and what Hamas is. They're a, a political movement who, uh, opposing Israel, uh, opposing the occupation, and they really came to the fore in 2007 when they ran in the Palestinian elections against the PLA and they were, were successful and they took over the government of Gaza and they have maintained that position ever since because there's been no elections since then. They, they are used by Israel as an example of what they say is a terrorist organisation. Certainly the case that they do have a militant uh, side to Hamas but um, one would expect that of, a, of, a, of an organisation which is seeking to obtain for Palestinians self-government. I mean, such, such military activity as Hamas is used, you know, the rockets which they fire aimlessly into Israel is absolutely nothing compared to what comes back in the other direction. So what you're saying is that they are a local... Palestinian organisation? Yes, legitimate, with the backing of the people. And they are not a terrorist organisation, or depends what you call by a terrorist, how you define terrorist organisation, I suppose, but I mean, it is used by their opponents, Israel in particular, as a way of undermining them. And of course, um, if anyone sort of speaks in favour of them, they're anti-Semitic and it's just the uh, defence mechanism that Israel has in place to, to say that uh, people shouldn't listen to them. When was Hamas listed as a terrorist organisation in Australia and what's it got to do with Australia? Well, exactly. I mean, they, they, I think it was the end of 2020 or 2021 they were, they were listed as a terrorist organisation without, as far as I'm aware, any opportunity for interested Palestinian organisations to have any input into the decision. And then there was, under the Australian legislation, there is a compulsory review after 12 months before a parliamentary committee, and that came up for review 
earlier this year, uh, but just but because it was before the just before the election, and of course the committees would change their composure. It was adjourned off until after the election. Only recently came before this new committee, and they invited representations from interested parties and one of the interested parties of course was Australian Friends of Palestine Association which is an Adelaide based organisation that I'm having involvement with uh, so we made representations, a written representation and the result was that the committee decided to maintain the listing as, an, as a terrorist organisation but they did acknowledge that there was a potential for prejudice to uh, Australian Palestinians and people, good-minded people in Australia who are seeking to assist in Palestine by providing funds for medical services and things like that, and said that there was a danger. They wanted to speak about that uh, in a in a meeting, and so we were afforded the opportunity of, of participating in a um, orally in a meeting addressing the committee, but um, uh, uh, it hasn't changed the fact of the listing as a terrorist organisation, which is, in my view, quite wrong. And so that's where, we, that's where we're at. What was in your submission? Essentially what I've been saying, that Israel, for example, says, well, we have a right to defend ourselves, but they don't afford a similar right to the Palestinian people. How do the Palestinian people defend themselves unless they obtain self-government, how do they obtain self-government without resisting? How do they resist without being called terrorists by Israel? Basically, we, we, we stated the broad case, and as I said, the impact which the listing has on our missions to provide medical services and things like that. And, and for example, I mean, uh, under the terrorist legislation, Australian terrorist legislation, if you assist a terrorist body, that is a criminal offence. And so, for example, when I speak with you on the phone now and I argue against it, am I committing a criminal offence by assisting a terrorist organisation? These were questions which the committee obviously were worried about and, and were concerned that undue prejudice might follow from the listing and so they wanted to hear about that but it hasn't caused them to change the listing. And, 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 and our position is clear that uh, the reason for that is that the pro-Israeli lobby in Australia is so strong, so strong, it effectively dictates what goes into our newspapers and it certainly dictates what our government does. So in, and it's not just um, a folk or a Friends of Palestine that um, was given the opportunity of speaking with APAN, the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, and other organisations. So I think that it's facts are getting out. I think the Australian people are starting to understand. I mean, one of the things which um, has interested me greatly recently, but Israel has been, has been found to be an apartheid state, conducting an apartheid regime. And apartheid is a war crime. Apartheid is a war crime. And so when Australia, and, and, and it's been found to be an apartheid state by creditable organisations such as Human Rights Watch based in New York and Amnesty International, detailed analysis and investigations. And so when Australia, for example, says, well, we're considering having a free trade agreement with Israel, my question is, well, how can we do that with a, and, it's, and thereby assist a state, Israel, which is committing a war crime without being accomplices? 
we want to know on what basis does Australia say, well, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have got it wrong. It's not a, an apartheid state. We know of no study that would justify that finding at all. And so when the Foreign Minister Penny Wong says, oh, well, Australia doesn't accept the findings of Amnesty International, we ask, on what basis do you not accept it? And the only basis, the only thing that we've heard uh, get counter to it, the only thing counter to the 280-page report by Amnesty International from Israel is, our uh, Amnesty International is biased against us. Uh, we say, well, what a ridiculous suggestion. How can it be set? And how can an organisation such as Amnesty, which is involved in human rights and has conducted a serious study, be, be, be just dismissed with a sentence? Oh, you're biased. That's all, those, all that's been said. And that's, as, as far as we know, all that the Australian government has accepted. Now, I want to know, how does our government dismiss these reports? Uh, and if it doesn't dismiss them, is Australia prepared to be an accomplice? in war crime. And it's all very well for, you know, for us to sort of point to other countries and say, point to Iran and say, oh, look, we're complicit with Russia in the war in Ukraine and point to China and say, well, they're complicit as well. And, and yet if Australia then deals, for example, with the Israeli arms manufacturer, Elbert Systems, uh, which advertises its expertise in controlling terrorist organisations, how is Australian Defence Forces can deal with Elbert Systems and say that they're not complicit in the war crime that Israel is committing is beyond me. So I'm hoping that a dialogue will ensue, public dialogue, and we start to get some answers to some of these questions. Paul, to go back to what you were saying about people who support the Palestinians can be labelled as terrorists or you won't be allowed to work there. If you send money through to to help the people, you're not giving the money to the government, you're giving it to the people and NGO organisations within Gaza. How can that be labelled terrorism? But you see, the Israeli government says if you give money to the government in Gaza, which is Hamas, you are, you are committing a terrorist act. If we uh, uh, approach the government in Gaza, which is like the ALP in Australia, if we give money to the ALP, that's what the Israeli government says, or that they're saying, oh, you, you're a, a, a terrorist. And indeed, that's, that they have attempted that with that NGO, one of the NGOs that was assisting, giving assistance in Gaza, the, the CEO that was challenged with, with giving money to Hamas and supporting terrorism, and was, yeah, he, was, he ended up in jail. We have to deal with the government. If somebody gives um, some money to the Australian government, uh, does that mean that, um, that we're giving it to the ALP? That's the criticism that comes back to us from Israel, because they are desperate to avoid any assistance being given that um, might enable Hamas to use its resources in various ways. For example, Hamas is in government. It's got responsibilities with medical, responsibilities with pensions and so on. And if they are receiving money, and it's also got responsibilities and proper responsibilities for defence. If they get financial assistance in one respect, Israel says, oh, that means that they've got money that they can um, allocate to defence. So you understand 
where they're coming from, and that's what we what, what we have to face. The fact of the matter is that Hamas is not a terrorist organisation, unlike um, people say ISIS, but I mean, uh, we won't really go there, I don't think. But, um, the government has refused to change their stand on this. Where does it leave groups now, as your, as your group, as FOPA and also APAN, and any other group that wants to help the people in Gaza? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you where it leaves it. It leaves us this. This, is the, this was the unspoken message coming back from the committee, which is, don't worry, when we have to make decisions as to whether or not to prosecute, we will take these matters into account. And what they're effectively saying is you can rest assured that no one's going to be prosecuted for giving money to a legitimate NGO. So they're saying, don't worry about it. You won't be prosecuted. But of course, push it under the carpet. They've done what they've been dictated to by the Israeli government, and yet they're, gonna, they're not going to make a big fuss about it. And, that's ha- and the Israeli government would be happy with that because they don't want the publicity. Just on the Israeli government, Paul, we've had the recent election and it seems that the far right is gaining more and more power in Israel. Where does that leave the Palestinians now? Well, probably slightly worse off than they were before. I mean, they're in a dreadful position with the last government and the uh, incoming government. I mean, they're both much, much, much the same insofar as Palestinians are concerned. I mean, what they say is that... um, there will never be a, a state of Palestine. That's, that's what their government policy says. There will never be a Palestinian state. And yet, when the uh, legitimate countries, European countries and so on, say, well, what's happened to the two-state thing? To, 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 your, to settling, they say, they throw back, oh, well, we, you know, we're working on the... We're still advancing the two-state solution, and it's just an outright lie. They are not advancing the two-state solution. They have, in one breath, they say there will never be a Palestinian state, and then when it's convenient to them, they say, oh, yes, we're trying to advance a two-state solution. What is necessary is for the international community to sanction Israel, sanction them, and to say, we recognise Palestine. I mean, 130 of the 170 or odd members of the United Nations have already recognised the state of Palestine. What the Security Council needs to do is to say, we recognise the state of Palestine on the 1967 borders, and Israel, you've got to get out of the occupied territories. If you do manage to get agreement with the new Palestinian government for slight alterations to the boundaries, so be it, that's fine. But if you don't, those are the boundaries, the 67 boundaries, and you have to live with them. And I might say there's some good signs, there's some good signs coming from the, our current Australian government. They have not as yet recognised the state of Palestine, notwithstanding the fact that the last two national conferences of the ALP passed resolutions that uh, the next Labor government would recognise the state of Palestine. And I believe that there is strong feelings within the Labor Party, rank-and-file members, that this must happen. And I believe that the Albanese government really... Well, I've heard rumours that um, that's around March next year they might be looking to do it, so we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, but that would be a big step, a good step for us. And the other thing that we've got to do, in my view, is we've got to stop dealing with organisations like Elbert Industries and we've got to stop seeking 
free trade agreements with Israel. And in, in, in my view, Australian companies should not be dealing with Israeli companies until they comply with, a UN, with UN sanctions uh, that the occupation must end. And I've been speaking with Paul Haywood-Smith, a member of FOPA, Australia Friends of Palestine Association. Hi, my name's Bandolini, also known as Robbie Thorpe. I want to invite you to the 2022 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday the 10th of November at Arnie Elmer Thorpe's Gathering Place, Dadi Manwaro, 546 to 550 High Street, Preston. There will be a panel discussion on First Nations incarceration and justice, some live music with Amos Roach and free copies of this year's Beyond the Bars CD. Thursday, the 10th of November, Arnie Alma Thorpe's Gathering Place, Dadi Manmaro, 6 to 8pm. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyond the bars. CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. A definition of farming is as follows. Science or practice of farming, including cultivation of the soil for the growing of crops and the rearing of animals to provide food wool and other products. And when we think of agriculture, it's outside urban areas, small farms, broad acres, to the extremes of vast properties in outback Australia. But things are changing. New concepts growing in Australia, urban agriculture, and November is Urban Agricultural Month. Celebrating growing edible cities and gardens, and it's run by Sustain, I think, and do network, connecting people to build tangible change. Nick Rose has been the Executive Director of Sustain since its development in January 2016. And I'll tell you a little about Nick. He has a background in law and community development, bringing more than a decade of working at the grassroots and institutional level in several Australian states in food sovereignty and sustainable food systems. He is the editor of Fair Food, Stories from a Movement Changing the World in 2015 and the co-editor of Reclaiming the Urban Commons, 
the past, present and future of food growing in Australian towns and cities. And that was in 2018. Nick is also lecturer in food systems, food policy and governments and food movement for William Angus Institute in their Bachelor of Food Studies and Master of Food Systems and Gastronomy. I spoke with Nick on Friday and my first comment was, in a sense, urban agriculture has always been a feature of city life, town life for many centuries in Australia and elsewhere, where people who had a small pot of land, a small patch of land attached to their homes were able to plant a few seeds and grow a few fruit trees to supplement their purchases from shops, etc., and vegetables. And then I asked, how different is his vision of urban agriculture? Well, that's a good question, Jan, and you're absolutely right. People growing food at home has always been with us, you know, as long as there's been human settlements and and the idea of urban concentrations of people in any part of the world, really, including Australia. There's always been people who've been growing food and wanting to have food close to them. In a sense, what's happening now is really continuing that age-old tradition. And I should also say, and this was reinforced by Andrea Gaynor's research, some of your listeners might recall that uh, Andrea Gaynor published uh, her PhD thesis in the form of a really important book called Harvest of the Suburbs, uh, looking back at the history of food growing in Melbourne and Perth from the 1880s through to the 1980s. Uh, that it wasn't just people growing food at home for their own consumption. It was also had a commercial element to it. It's waxed and waned, I guess, is one way of thinking about it over time, that there's been, you know, different sort of cycles and patterns with this. I think what's different now is in 2022 and this decade in particular, these last few years in particular, there's a growing realisation that you know, the, the, the long-distance food system, the industrialised food system, reliant on long-distance transport and supply chains is not as stable and secure as we might have you know, come to believe and taken for granted, that it's been subject to all kinds of disruptions and that there's an increased understanding also that these practices of food growing, whether it's the self-provisioning, self-consumption or whether it's uh, small cell commercial have lots of other important elements and benefits to them as well, particularly climate change, uh, adaptation and mitigation, health and well-being and community connection. So I think perhaps what's what's changed is the external context for, for these things. You know, 100 years ago, there wasn't a, a climate emergency in the way there is now. Uh, there wasn't a, a health crisis that was the result of a massive global fast food industry and ultra-processed food industry that has now become the biggest cause of disease and death in countries like Australia. That wasn't a feature of uh, human society back in the 1920s, so those kind of things have changed. But the, the essential nature of what people are doing is, in terms of growing food has stayed the same. I guess the other point is the technologies have changed and the, the methods and the understandings have changed Permaculture, you know, quintessential Australian 
innovation of late 1970s, early 1980s. That really informs and, and inspires and motivates a lot of people in Australian towns and cities to grow some of their own food, and that, that wasn't something that was happening 100 years ago either. So then, you know, I could go on, you know, growing mushrooms in shipping containers, rooftop farms, all these kinds of things are, are new and different. So, you know, technology has changed. But, the yeah, the, the essential underlying practice and, and I guess the essential reason for it in terms of people wanting to have some measure of control over the basics of life, you know, the basic necessities and needs of, of, of food are very much uh, a constant. I guess talking about that control, we know that food now is overproduced, but the, the number of chemicals that are in the food that we eat today when we buy maybe from a supermarket, and now we have certain foods that can be irradiated without people knowing that they've been irradiated. And many people sort of feel a bit hopeless or helpless, thinking that they have no control over what they're eating now if they don't do it themselves. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good point. I, I think there's uh, the processed food industry and, and the, the growth of, of food technology and food science and the different technologies that you've, you've mentioned there. Yeah, a, a, a source of, of a lot of concern, uh, alarm and, and even fear. There's probably not a really good understanding of exactly what all this means and what it's what it's doing to us, but I, I think there's a growing awareness that the nutritional density and 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 healthfulness of food, even even fresh food, is is not as good as it as it could be and and really should be and needs to be. So people, yeah, having access to space, uh, whether it's in their own private space or some form of communal space, to participate in growing their own food and know exactly what goes in it and whether any chemicals are applied or not is reassuring. And, and I'm sure I speak, you know, as any gardener in Melbourne or anywhere would attest that uh, if you're able to, to grow it yourself and you've sort of engaged in composting and those practices and you've got your soil up to a reasonable level, you know, you pick the food and you eat it the same day, it, it tastes good and it's really fresh and also it lasts a long time. If you get it in the fridge and, you know, keep it airtight, it does last uh, a good amount of time as well so i think those are these are these are all reasons why people you know and more people are engaging in in these activities and we certainly saw a big increase in that during the the pandemic of course that was something we documented with the pandemic gardening survey the lockdowns uh, people uh, going you know uh, taking up for the first time or, or going back to these activities or expanding what they're already doing that was a, a real tendency in the last couple of years and of course, it's not only people doing it in their own private properties, it's those communal spaces. And in a sense, they've always been there, or in a minimal sense, for quite a while. But there's more and more of those. And also important with food is the kitchen gardens at many, many schools now. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, some surveys suggest that maybe half of all Australians are growing or raising some of their own food, which is a pretty, you know, pretty impressive number when you think about it. But the community garden sector is, is growing as well. Community Gardens Australia, the peak body, national peak body for community gardens in Australia, I think have mapped well over 700 nationally, but they estimate there's probably at least twice that number or, or more that exist. And there's new ones starting all the time. You know, that, that's an expanding sector and that uh, got huge potential in, in our view. There's so many uh, vacant spaces around Melbourne, around other cities that just sit there empty, growing weeds behind cyclone fencing, you know, in bare dirt or concrete 
for years and years sometimes while the landowner decides what they're going to do with that site. And in the meantime, if there was you know some resourcing and, and some enabling frameworks in place, those vacant patches of land could be could be used for, for growing foods um, in all kinds of ways. And we've done that ourselves with the Oak Hill Food Justice Farm in Preston over the last year to you know demonstrate how this uh, can be done and the benefits that it achieves. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the school gardens, another big expanding uh, sector and so many benefits there educationally for next generation, uh, learning where their food comes from, learning about you know the basics of ecology and, and biology and why healthy soil and healthy food matters, you know, supporting good good eating practices, a curiosity and amongst uh, children and, you know, love of and appreciation for nature. Yeah, we've, we've seen that ourselves again with, with Oak Hill with a partnership with Preston Primary School where all 680 of their students have been coming through uh, our sites, only a five-minute walk from the school with a hands-on learning program about uh, soil to stomach, um, a tomato growing Program. They don't actually have a, a garden at the school, so for them it's been a, a great opportunity for uh, the teachers to bring their year groups up to uh, the Oak Hill Food Justice Farm and, and go through a, a structured program of, of hands-on learning with a social justice uh, focus where the food that's been grown by the students and, and by our uh, team and, and local resident volunteers is all being donated to Diverse, Darabin Information Volunteer Resource Service, who support over 100 families weekly in, in the Darabin municipality who need access to good food. So, you know, the fresh food we're growing in Preston is, is contributing to, to that effort and the school uh, is part of that. So those are the kinds of positive collaborations that creative use of, uh, of what was previously just abandoned vacant land in Preston, the, the old vicarage of St Mary's Church, how it can be activated and, you know, uh, turned to to uh, useful purpose, creating some jobs and uh, educational and, and training opportunities and contributing to local food security. Well, you've had the uh, launch of Growing Edible Cities and Towns. That was um, late last month. Can you talk more about the research that went into that? I mean, one of the first things I want to say about that is that the research was commissioned by uh, Agriculture Victoria to help them develop a, a more in-depth understanding of urban agriculture in, in Victoria, which uh, you know we see as, as very welcome and, and significant and continuing uh, interest from AgVic, that, that part of state government in more local food economies. Uh, a few years before that, we did some research with them that led to the creation of their artisanal agriculture, small-scale agriculture roadmap um, to support small-scale and local producers uh, in Victoria. So, you know, these are encouraging signs that the you know, state government is showing interest in, in this uh, other dimension of, uh, of food production. It's not all about uh, big sort of broad-acre agriculture and export uh, markets. That's the, you know, with the origins of this research and uh, it was really to understand who were engaged in these activities, what uh, what, si- what types of organisations and individuals and businesses, where they were located, what kind of activities were they engaged in, you know, what was their age, you know, how much employment were they generating, what was motivating them, you know, what do they see as, you know, the challenges and obstacles to expanding their activities and helping other new entrants in this sector and what do they see as the opportunities. So those were the those are the kinds of questions that we were exploring in this 
survey research. Um, so we received 153 uh, surveys. Uh, we complemented that with some desktop research around uh, the state, particularly Melbourne, Bendigo, Ballarat and Geelong. And we came up with an estimate, you know, a, a cautious estimate of around 650 organisations roughly split between community organisations like community gardens and other not-for-profits as well as commercial businesses. So that's in terms of the, you know, the size of the sector. The community organisations, for the most part, community gardens were, there's a real cluster um, around the inner north uh, suburbs of Melbourne. Commercial were more prevalent in the outer suburbs or peri-urban areas. It was a young sector. Um, more than 50% of respondents to our survey were under the age of 45, and that really contrasts sharply with the ageing demographic of Australian farmers, where you know most of them are now over 60 years old, and many are over 70 years old. A, a shrinking minority are under 40. So, so that's really important because this, you know, this can be this sector can be seen as a pathway for young people interested in pursuing a career in agriculture to have a you know an, an easy entry point in these kinds of urban and peri-urban areas and if they then wish to, to go and do something you know larger scale you know they've got some experience and capacity behind them to do that and it was dynamic it's um, in our survey uh, one third of the respondents were startups were in the establishment phase and half of them were planning to grow or diversify the sector was really in the you know, phase of, phase of growth and expansion. Very wide range of activities that uh, participants were engaged in. Um, you know, horticulture, veggies, fruits, berries, raising small-scale livestock, um, beekeeping, community education workshop, community and school garden coordination, advocacy and food emergency food relief were some of the range of activities that people were growing in. Also, mushroom fungi culture was a, a real sort of emerging sphere of activity. And in terms of their values, why people are doing this, social and environmental values are really top of the list, uh, creating a healthy food system, contributing to healthy urban environments and enabling more self-sufficient communities, as well as responding to climate change. They, all of those were either very or extremely important to over 90% of respondents. Very much a values-driven sector motivated by those social and environmental values more so than um, more traditional economic values. And we know the importance too of introducing new food. You can think um, maybe after World War II where the, the migrants came from Italy and, and Greece and places like that and introduced foods that they brought with them. Now we have new migrants in Australia and also just the, the new foods that are available to people that weren't there before and the also the importance of organisations like Digger Seeds who also introduce new foods to people. Exactly right. You know, one, one example that we've uh, supported ourselves in terms of uh, new crops, new foods and culturally appropriate and diverse foods is the establishment of the United African Farm. Um, this is a group of more than 60 or 70 people from several different African nations who are now living in the Cardinia-Shire, Pakenham, Beaconsfield area. We've worked with them over the last couple of years to help them get access to land and a generous farmer, I think a third-generation beef farmer outside of uh, Officer, 
in uh, Cardinia has agreed with them a, a peppercorn rent on three acres uh, for them to establish a multicultural, multinational African farm, United African Farm, they call it, uh, on three acres. And they were delighted that they've been supported by Big Health, uh, Big Health, which is, you know, arms length with state government but funded through state revenue. It's had a, a strong focus on these activities, particularly with youth over the last couple of years. United African Farm have received a significant three-year grant through a big health program that's establishing healthy food hubs with a focus on creating opportunities for young people in employment. They've called that the Ubuntu Food Hub. Ubuntu, U-B-U-N-T-U, means I am because we are, and that sort of speaks to their philosophy and spirituality. It's a, a wonderful example of, um, of community collaboration between traditional Australian farmers and uh, new migrant communities uh, for the broader benefit of, you know, the, not just the members of the African diaspora in Cardinia, but, but more broadly. And that's, that's one of seven such initiatives that are taking place around Victoria that Big Health have supported. Um, another one in Mildura, the Food Next Door Food Co-op, Similarly, has been working with Burundian and Congolese migrants to gain access to land and, and grow foods from, from their cultures as well. So, yeah, you're absolutely right, and that's one of the really positive uh, and exciting elements of this uh, of this sector. Well, you've had the launch, Nick. What's the plan for the rest of the month? We had the launch at the Angus Restaurant on the 27th of October. Um, uh, anyone who's interested can now um, download the report and read it uh, on our website. What we set out there is a roadmap to implement the expansion of the urban agriculture sector in Victoria. For us, this is an advocacy agenda that we wish to take to you know all parties and political candidates now that we're going into the um, state government election and say that you know we really uh, need uh, at the Victorian level, state the next state government needs to adopt a food system and urban agriculture plan or, or strategy, as has been done in many other places around the world, and it needs to resource that properly so that we can uh, have a, a mass expansion of this uh, of this sector because of all the positives that it generates. So, you know, the six pillars to that roadmap: the statewide policy, as I mentioned, um, whole of government approach to coordination uh, with you know community representatives with First Nations peoples and and others to implement it really getting urban agriculture into the planning framework and land use framework to you know to create almost a right to farm in the city as they've done in the city of Boston uh, an urban agriculture fund and financing mechanisms to incentivize people to do this and incentivize landowners to make their land available through, through things like you know discounts on land tax or rates capacity building, training, uh, research and infrastructure materials. So we've, you know, gone through that in quite some detail. It's a whole, you know, plan of action that is uh, there for adoption. And just this week, uh, because Urban Agriculture Month is a national initiative, just this week, uh, we were delighted to see that in New South Wales, a year-long inquiry from the New South Wales Legislative Council Committee on Environment and Planning that was chaired, a cross-party committee chaired by the independent MP for Sydney, Alex Greenwich, handed down their report. Uh, they received 77 submissions from a whole range of different organisations across the food system in New South Wales, as well as 44 verbal uh, uh, witnesses, including myself. The 36 recommendations in that report and the centrepiece of it was the creation of a statewide 
uh, food security and food system plan for New South Wales, community government uh, council, food system council to guide its implementation, including strong representation from First Nations uh, communities, and then a whole series of other recommendations, including uh, foregrounding community gardening and urban agriculture as a key policy priority for the next New South Wales government. They're having their election, of course, in, in March next year. So it's not just in Victoria that these issues are being raised. It is national. It's a very busy month. We've got um, nearly 180 events uh, registered now on the Urban Agriculture Month uh, website, including over 100 in, uh, in Victoria alone, a wide range of open gardens, workshops, beekeeping, composting, you know, seminars, webinars, all kinds of things um, are happening all over the country. So I'd really encourage listeners to look at that website and, you know, see the opportunities to get involved. And if you are involved in the community garden um, or something similar yourself to, you know, help us raise awareness and, and build the profile of this sector by registering your own events. And also we've spoken previously, Jan, about the campaign we ran last year with the small-scale women farmers in Gaza, in Palestine, and we'll be culminating this uh, this month on the 29th of November, which is the International Day of Solidarity with Palestine, with a, a reflective webinar on what was achieved through that proud campaign, the Gaza Urban and Peri-Urban Agriculture Platform, to raise over $25,000 to, uh, to support those uh, urban agriculture businesses in Gaza. So that will be happening on the 29th of November. As well, and then going into December, uh, we're just finalising the details, but uh, the new independent senator for Canberra, David Pocock, who's a strong supporter of regenerative agriculture, has agreed to agreed to speak at a Canberra Urban Agriculture Forum that uh, will take place in Canberra on the 7th of December. So that's exciting to get this on the uh, on the political agenda in the nation's capital and in the federal parliament as well. So, you know, for us, we see a huge uh, need and opportunity to uh, support the expansion of this sector, support the thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of Australians who are doing all these things, you know, already uh, to celebrate them, recognise them, and to say that this work, uh, these activities are an essential part of our response to all the challenges and crises that uh, that we're dealing with uh, right now. That's what Urban Agriculture Month is about. And we're wanting to raise as much awareness as we can right now and continue that uh, continue that into uh, next year and beyond. Well, just finally and briefly, Nick, you don't have to be an expert gardener with four green thumbs, but you've got to be willing to learn and possibly to contribute. Absolutely. And again, you know, just, you know, you learn by doing and just get, you know, get started, and if you if you feel uh, a little bit underconfident doing it yourself in your own garden, I would just suggest you know getting involved in a community garden nearby if you can. Uh, if if anyone's yeah in the Preston Reservoir you know area, you know come and come and visit us at the Oak Hill Food Justice Farm. We have regular working bees and and lots of other you know similar initiatives uh, around Melbourne do, and that's a great way to meet people, learn some skills, you know build your connections in your community and neighbourhood build your own confidence and, and then you can, you know, you can do it yourself. Even if you're in an apartment, you can do things at a, a small scale as well in, in pots and you can grow mushrooms inside. So, you know, there's there's so many ways to, to get involved and it's, yeah, it's a, a really uh, rewarding and satisfying 
thing to do and, and deeply meaningful. So, yeah, I'd encourage everyone to get involved. Thanks very much, Nick. Thanks, Jan. And I've been speaking with Nick Rose from Sustain, but do look up Urban Agriculture Month. Hello, 3CR listeners. I'm Giselle Hanna from Accent of Women and Asia Pacific Currents, and I'm appealing to you to subscribe to 3CR to keep radical voices on air. I've been a volunteer and broadcaster at 3CR for over 20 years, and I can say categorically that radical voices like ours that bring you stories of extraordinary, incredible women from across the world leading grassroots struggles, well, those voices just aren't welcome in the mainstream media. You won't hear about the struggle against Samsung's human rights abuses against its workers in South Korea. You won't hear about the plight of the Myanmar resistance against the coup on any other station, at least not the way we tell it here at 3CR. So be a comrade and go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. There are now 189 people on hunger strike. 62 have sewn their lips together, including two women and five children. For Woomera, this isn't an unusual day. We have an old saying in it says there is no darker color than black. So we were in the camp. We have two options: either deporting us to back to persecution, to prison, to death, or die in the camp. But I think you guys give us a third option, which is another try. They bent like half-cooked spaghetti. We didn't expect it to happen like that. To the soundtrack of Amelie a popular French movie at the time, blowing across the desert from dusty speakers. The fence began to fall, under the weight of people wanting justice, under the weight of people that had had enough. Join us for Woomera Stories on Monday, November 21st and November 28th at 6pm on 3CR. Already they've set up camp only 200 metres from the Woomera Detention Centre's main gate. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. The island of Bougainville, 1,000 kilometres east of PNG is back in the news again, as war between the two could break out in the future. Perhaps aided by our Labor federal government, a party with a history of making life hell for the people of Bougainville. A bitter and bloody battle between PNG and its mineral-rich Bougainville Island occurred from the late 1980s to the mid-1990s. At least 20,000 Bougainvillean people, mainly civilians, died during that war. As a result, New Zealand and Australia organised a peace conference in 1997 where all parties agreed that Bougainville would hold a referendum over independence. But the signed agreement meant PNG would have the final word. So, in 2001, 
the referendum was held, watched over by international observers. 97.7% of Bougainville's population voted in favour of Bougainville becoming an independent country. As a result, PNG allowed its former state to set up their own government within PNG's government called the Autonomous Government of Bougainville. Its elected president is Ishmael Toyama, a former leader of the Bougainville Revolutionary Army. But PNG has never granted legal political control of Bougainville to its population, but does provide Bougainville with substantial financial support. The war on Bougainville has been widely described as the world's first war over the environment, as the environmentally damaging mine was also the world's most profitable, especially for PNG and the mine's British and Australian owners. Now, just over two weeks ago, the Anthony Albanese government's Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister, Richard Miles, was asked about Bougainville's future during a joint press conference with the PNG Prime Minister, James Marape, at Port Moresby. Miles said, As a witness to the agreements that were put in place in respect of Bougainville more than 20 years ago, our job is to support PNG, and that's what we're going to do. Our role is to support the Prime Minister and the Government of Papua New Guinea in its decisions that it makes in respect of the future of Bougainville, and we stand ready to do that. That statement implied that if PNG rejects Bougainville's intentions to become an independent country, Australia will support PNG's decision. Bougainville's elected president, Toyoma, made an angry response to Miles in Bougainville's parliament the day after saying, The statements by the Australian Defence Minister, Richard Miles, are, in my view, veiled threats being issued to the government and people of Bougainville as he boasts about the military cooperation between the two countries. Toriyama added, We have remained passive recipients of piecemeal contributions and boomerang aid from the Australian government, but Mr Miles' sentiments have now shown Australia's true intents for Bougainville. To discuss Bougainville's past and present, I've invited a journalist, Jim Beetson, who has a long history of following events on Bougainville, to explain its history to today. Jim covered Bougainville for The Guardian, New Zealand Herald, San Francisco Chronicle, occasionally Time magazine, Fairfax and News Limited newspapers, and many other newspapers. My first question to Jim was, what started him off covering Bougainville? While I was living in London, I worked as a freelancer journalist and broke some important stories for the Guardian newspaper. So in 1989, the Guardian appointed me as their Australian and Pacific correspondent. The first thing I did on arriving in Sydney was to plan my first visit to Bougainville, and it seemed to me to be the most interesting thing happening in our region. The conflict was starting... And like new reporters, I was keen to cover a war from day one. I suspected the war would be unjust and driven by money. So I flew in for a couple of days and met key leaders on the island and got early evidence of PNG's violence there. A year later, with the war now in full swing and the island blockaded by Papua New Guinea, 
Australia's Prime Minister Paul Keating supplied Papua New Guinea with Iroquois attack helicopters and several armed naval patrol boats, which could isolate Bougainville from anything from coming in or out. I had to enter Bougainville illegally through the western Solomon Islands. I lived with the family of political leaders, Martin Meriori and his wife Scholastica, and spent a month there, including travelling around the island with the commander of the Bougainville Revolutionary Army, Sam Kayona. The title BRA, uh, Bougainville Revolutionary Army, was invented as a joke by PNG, but the islanders accepted the name with pride. From Bougainville, I did live reports to the ABC via Solomon Islands Broadcasting Commission. Can you explain why there is this fundamental conflict between PNG? Hasn't Bougainville always been a part of PNG? Surprisingly, most people assume that, but no. It all goes back to 1893, a time when taking over countries was common around the world, including the Pacific. Bougainville was the most affected of all of those countries. Between 1893 and 1975, Bougainville has changed hands eight times. How's that happened? Well, Britain owned the British Solomon Islands, the largest island of which was Bougainville. Five years later, Britain separated Bougainville from the rest of the Solomons by swapping it with Germany for British concessions in German East Africa. Of course, in the following century, Bougainville was variously controlled by Japan, the United States, and several times by Australia. Are the people of Bougainville and PNG very different? They're very different in colour, language, geography, and culture. Although both are Melanesians, Bougainvillians are much more community-minded and resolve issues through dialogue. It's called the Melanesian way. For example, after the war with PNG ended, reconciliation ceremonies were held throughout the island with tears, songs, and ceremonies on both sides, since a small number of Bougainvillians did support Papua New Guinea. Bougainville is a country with strong and different local cultures and languages, very much like Australian Aboriginal cultures. Everyone knows each other in every village, and every death and injury is a death and injury for the whole community. That was something that really struck me hard because I'd never seen that anywhere else. Of course, the Bougainvillians are renowned for having very black skin, whereas PNG people have a reddish skin colour and were described by Bougainvillians during the war and earlier as Redskins. Well then, the question is, why is Bougainville so important to PNG? Pretty common answer, money and a lot of it. PNG received 20% profit share from its lease of the land at Panguna, where the gold and copper mine, plus payments for use of site facilities, like the airport, the port, the power station, and the land on which hundreds of houses were built for white workers for the town, Arawa, where the white workers were based. Here's a bit of geological background. When two tectonic plates crash together 
as happened in Bougainville, PNG and West Papua hundreds of thousands of years ago. These plates push upwards creating mountains, often leaving huge deposits of minerals on their crown. Those early German settlers in PNG had their eyes on Bougainville, but not just on its rich volcanic soils, but for the possible expectation that the mountains might contain valuable minerals. So when a large quantity of copper is found, it's not unusual for it to have a gold cap on the top. So the trick for mining companies is to get an assayist to examine the find, estimate how much gold is there, preferably with an assayist who underestimates the size of the gold cap prior to negotiating the royalty fees paid to the government whose land on which it sits. This may not have happened in Bougainville, but the final divvy was the PNG government was that they received 20% share of profits from the mine, of which Bougainville Island received 5%, with a 1.25% share, which went to the displaced locals from the Bougainville mine. Well, when I say the Bougainville mine, there were three villages located because the mine is about three kilometres by two kilometres in diameter. This is a gigantic hole. Looks a bit like an ulcer. So how did it go for the Panguna locals? Well, not well. Some honest lawyers, plus smart locals, plus some rich locals and PNG scam artists arrived and got locals to sign sometimes correct and sometimes misleading or false documents to put money into true or false bank accounts that frequently turned out badly for the Bougainvillean villagers leaving them very disappointed and very angry. I guess I'd always been interested in why wars start, and I saw this as a great opportunity for me to discover this there on Bougainville. On Bougainville, Solomon's and Vanuatu land, the land is passed along the matrilineal line from the women to the women's daughters. Men largely control the economy and government, but this is changing. Today, women are more and more in charge in government, and of course, their primary task is to protect the land. Let me paint a picture of the island. The huge Panguna mine sits atop a peak containing three villages, as I've mentioned, onto which mining tailings were dumped. And when we talk about tailings, most people wouldn't realise that when you conduct almost any mine, about 97% of the dirt that they dig up is thrown away. Only about 3% is used and then sent to another country for processing in Bougainville's case. The tailings were dumped into the Yaba River, which flows down the mountain to the west coast and into the Empress Augusta Bay. Port and airport are on the east side of the island at the old, tired provincial capital, Kieta, while Arawa is just north of Kieta and has rows of new houses for the European workers and is just south of the site of a new power station built at a site called Rarabana. The impact of a massive mine on a small island is gigantic on the environment, employment, incomes, land ownership, shops, alcohol outlets and law and order. In August 1969, 
local women from Ruravana linked arms to stop the building of the power station on their land. And they were bashed by dozens of helmeted PNG police armed with tear gas, batons, rifles, gas masks at the site of what was to become the Lolaho power station. Seventy tall pylons would be built to carry power to the inland Panguna mine 70 kilometres away up into the mountains. There were protests outside the RTZ Rio Tinto Zinc, which owned the mine offices in London, over the bashings at Roravana. An international and Australian media covered both. This was the first of a series of escalations to occur. Then two French employees at a French catering subcontractor near Kieta were accused of raping and killing a mother and her daughter. Now, in a place like Bougainville, the village owns the land, so all of the villagers that lived in the Panguna site, the three villages, were angry over the pollution and in not getting their share of the promised 1.5% of the profits. In May 1975, the regional provincial government on Bougainville decided to secede from Papua New Guinea one month before Whitlam gave independence to PNG. Bougainville's parliamentary speaker, they've got local government. It was based on the Australian constitutional model of having states. And Moses Savini was the parliamentary speaker and he carried a Bougainville flag to Wakanai in North Bougainville where a universal declaration, that is a UDI, was proclaimed. Similar ceremonies were conducted around the island, but neither PNG nor Australia's Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, recognised this. A few months later, in January 1976, PNG police fired rubber bullets and tear gas canisters into a crowd supporting independence. Moses Savini, a man committed to non-violence, was hit in the back with a canister wounding him. So things were slowly getting worse. Next, angry Bougainvillians made shotgun attacks on buses transporting workers up to Panguna from Arawa, but no injuries occurred. PNG retaliated by sending police to Bougainville, and at one occasion, Bougainville's Minister of Primary Industry at a protest got a rifle barrel shoved into his eye, causing him to go blind. The situation was clearly getting out of control. Rio Tinto Zinc and its partner, Consinc Rio Tinto of Australia, they owned a company called Bougainville Copper Limited. BCL were the mining company at Panguna. So they contracted Geology Associates, a New Zealand company who headhunted Professor John Connell, the head of the metallurgy department at Sydney University, to hold an economic and environmental development report into the project. I met Connell and he explained to me the result at a public meeting that he held at the Bougainville's provisional new capital, Arawa, where he presented the report's results. And I quote what he told me. There was a large crowd awaiting in the presentation hall. After the presentation, it was time for questions from a very unhappy audience. The first question was, why are the cocoa bean crops yields near Panguna village lower than before? Question two, why are the number of flying foxes at Panguna reducing number? 
finally Francis Hona, who was a Panguna surveyor with BCL and a leading member of the Panguna Landowners Association, described how tailings flooded down the river from Panguna, flowing into the Empress Augusta Bay, and asked why are the fish there dying and covered in ulcers. Connell told me, quite truthfully, he explained to an increasingly angry audience that, quote, after a lot of research, his team could find no scientific link between these three unexplained events, other than that there was clearly circumstantial evidence. He added that sometimes unexplained diseases swept through areas in the Pacific, leading to unexpected fish kills. At that point, the audience exploded with abusive shouts, and Francis Owner, the Panguna surveyor and landowner, plus about 50 other men, stormed out of the meeting into the bush. So over the next month, Owner's group calculated the cost of the loss of the land from the three villages over many generations that the PNG mine occupied at Panguna. They determined that it totaled 10 billion kina. And the exchange rate at the time was one kina equals one dollar. So in other words, they were demanding 10 billion Australian dollars. Even the largest mining company in the world doesn't have 10 billion Australian dollars sitting in a spare bank account somewhere. So owner and his group sent a letter to Bougainville Copper Limited, PNG and Australian governments demanding that the 10 billion kina compensation and gave them six weeks to respond. None of these threes replied, although the letter was leaked to the media where the sum was so large it was treated as a joke. Very shortly afterwards, Francis owner and his gang, in now living in the bush, attacked and burnt down VCL's office block at Panguna and stole all the extensive supply of mining explosives from the mine stockade. Then they blew up the first of the three of the 70 power pylons, with two more to come over following weeks, that carried the power from the Loloho power station to the mine. These actions each time closed the mine for several very expensive days. So in mid-1975, Papua New Guinea sent in troops with Australian-supplied weapons, with Australian-trained PNG officers, including a sophisticated Bougainville lieutenant, Sam Kayona, who was also trained in Australia, who quickly deserted the PNG army and became the skilled General Sam Kayona, leader of the BRA. A fellow senior journalist told me he tracked down an Australian Defence Forces officer who claimed he came up with the idea of creating a medieval-style blockade of the island where nothing came in or out of the island, including food, medicines, doctors, nurses and teachers. There were three doctors employed on the island working at 50 medical centres across the island, which was supplied with medical supplies by Australia. However, uh, once the blockade occurred, the three doctors were uh, sent back to PNG, leaving the island with no doctors and a very quickly diminishing supply of medical supplies.
The war was violent and protracted. After a highly damaging story on the ABC Four Corners program, which described PNG troops rounding up key supporters of justice for Bougainville, including a Christian pastor and some members of his flock, being put on these Australian helicopters and flown over the ocean and thrown out as food to sharks. After the program, a senior ABC staffer told me that Prime Minister Keating had directed ABC senior management there was to be no more exposés on the Bougainville War. Print media coverage of the bloody war was consistent. Increasingly, churches, non-government organisations, trade unions and civil society here were becoming alarmed. The Catholic Church, the dominant religion on the island, became active in raising the injustices occurring on Bougainville. Clearly the Solomon Islanders and many Pacific countries felt similarly. Australian community radio activists visited Bougainville by the Solomon's back door and set up Radio Free Bougainville. Documentary filmmakers were starting to travel there. Activists in Sydney and Melbourne, including Fred Hollows, started regularly going to major hospitals to collect medicines past their use-by date, which were then sent on to Bougainville using the same backdoor route. The BRA had the enormous advantage of fighting and being on their own land. At the end of the Second World War, the US troops who'd been fighting the Japanese had dug huge holes in the side of mountains and filled them with unused weaponry. So the BRA had no shortage of 303 bullets. The BRA captured plenty of weapons from the PNG soldiers. The Panguna Mines Workshop were churning out homemade rifles using steel water pipes as barrels and welding captured PNG machine guns onto the back of the mine's four-wheel drive utes. They won the war over several years quite easily, but at a cost of many lives on many sides. But, and this is a really big but, if Australia, PNG and the United States and therefore the media and the United Nations don't recognise you've won, you haven't. Stalemate. That was something that the Bougainvillians had never thought of. So PNG's Prime Minister, Julius Chan, spent close to $40 million to engage mercenaries from the British-owned Sandline Mercenary Army to crush Bougainville. But this collapsed as soon as the mercenaries arrived in Port Moresby when PNG's top general, Jerry Sangarok, arrested the mercenaries. This was disastrous to PNG's government and big news in Australia. So the war ended but unresolved. New Zealand was always much more supportive of Bougainville's case than Australia and wanted a peace conference between PNG and Bougainville. The women of Bougainville, along with many non-government organisations, got to work arguing Bougainville's case to Alexander Downer, who was particularly impressed by these Bougainville women. So in 1997, New Zealand, along with Australia, but primarily New Zealand, organised the Burnham Burnham Peace Conference in Christchurch. Kiwi and Australian ministers and bureaucrats plus PNG and Bougainville leaders attended where it was agreed that, one, a referendum on independence for Bougainville should be held with international observers and, two, but at the same time, 
Australia said that it wouldn't commit to supporting any results because that would be left to PNG to determine Bougainville's future, which had to be finally decided by 2027. PNG anticipated that they would be able to make a persuasive case so that the people of Bougainville would support remaining within PNG at the referendum. So now we have a Labor government in Australia. What's the situation as you see it? I'd have to say that the Labor Party in Australia have had a really negative impact on Bougainville. It really started with Gough Whitlam, who didn't want Papua New Guinea to become a failed state under his watch, as it happened under many former European colonies in Africa. So perhaps not knowing much about or caring much about Bougainville, he made the price of his granting independence to PNG at little cost to Australia, but at a huge cost to Bougainville. Bougainville Copper Limited, as I explained previously, was a subsidiary of Consing Rio Tinto of Australia, then a partner with the world's biggest mining company, Rio Tinto Zinc. Bougainville had made the mine the world's most profitable. Keating's position I've already discussed. In fairness to Keating, when he supplied the Iroquois helicopters, he did have the uh, machine gun mounts. These are helicopters that were widely used in Vietnam, and people will remember seeing footage of Iroquois helicopters flying over Vietnam being used as gunships. And that's why Keating removed the attachment points for machine guns around the doors on each side of the helicopters. But the PNG quickly got around that by making them out of wood and then they could lash machine guns uh, with ropes onto the uh, new wooden handles. Australia has always supplied most countries in the Pacific with patrol boats. This is a way of keeping the Pacific Islands in step with Australian foreign policy and greatly appreciated by those countries. And now, of course, it's being challenged by China, who's offering other goodies. That was Keating's position. And, of course, that made Keating extremely unpopular in Bougainville. And now, under Prime Minister Albanese, Australia has a regional political orientation. Be friends with friendly neighbours. And the friendly neighbours really are at least potentially friendly neighbours, PNG and Indonesia, the two most powerful countries in our region after ourselves. Hence Australia's shameful relationship with West Papua because of our strategic friendship with Indonesia over fears over China. So that's where we are today. I'd have to say that the conservative governments in Australia haven't been a help either. Everybody has realised that there was a lot of minerals still uh, on the island of Bougainville. And you may recall back in 2014, uh, Australia's Minister for Defence, one David Johnston, was sacked for saying that the South Australian Submarine Corporation couldn't build a canoe. Well, David Johnson uh, was one of a number of uh, significant investors in a mine on Tinputs, which is on the east coast uh, of Bougainville, which was planned to be another gold and copper mine. Because the deposit on Bougainville was so enormous, there are lots of people, including PNG, who would like to see PNG controlling Bougainville. So that's 
where we are today at a time when Australia appears to be making friends with the United States and Indonesia as a bulwark against China. So Bougainville could be yet another victim of big power politics happening in Australia. Another little dodgy uh, add-on that I've got for you, and that is in 2018, the Department of Primary Industries on Bougainville decided that they would hold an international chocolate festival to attract international buyers, as most listeners would be aware. There is now a big market internationally for elite chocolate, and Bougainville produced some of the finest chocolate beans in Australia. When I was on Bougainville, I went to one plantation. These cocoa beans slowly being processed and then sent off to Papua New Guinea. There's a boat that comes over once a month with supplies and the bags of beans go over to there. And of course, the Bougainvillians have always hoped that uh, adventure tourism plus Bougainville's rich volcanic soil could lead them to become a major producer of what we call sugar bananas, which are almost unknown in Europe, and that they could be selling these uh, cocoa beans to the companies that make special chocolates. As it happened, uh, somebody I met was an expert at organising international festivals. He was contracted by the Department of Foreign Affairs and ADFAT on behalf of Bougainville Department of Primary Industries to organise this Bougainville Chocolate Festival. Although it was a big success, no international buyers came. So the Bougainvillians decided that they would hold another festival the following year. And since he'd created the website and all of the materials about Bougainville and Bougainville cocoa beans, he was the man re-employed to do the job. However, with about a month to go, he was contacted by the person in charge of DFAT on Bougainville to come and see him and explain to him that he was working uh, very hard on the festival, but his services were no longer required. And when my friend asked why, he said, you just don't seem to have the big picture and ask what the big picture was. And he just kept on getting the same words along the lines of you don't really know what's going on here. And I think that is because the subtext in both PNG and Australia is that they would like the mine to reopen PNG most of all because it provided about 40% of the revenue of their island and because now Bougainville Copper parent company has changed from RTZ and CRA. Those two have now combined and it's now an Australian company. So Australians would make huge profits if the mine did reopen. I've travelled quite widely around the Pacific and the one thing that people in the Pacific want is exactly what we want. Food, roads, and they need ports so that they've got employment, so that their kids can uh, have a job and they can be fed. And that's going to cost a lot of money. And so there are two options, building a mine, there, opening more mines, or trying to do it the harder way with chocolate and agriculture and tourism. And I imagine that many people on Bougainville fear that Australia has economic interests, as does P&G, in not going down that route. And you've been listening to journalist Jim Beetson, who has a long history of following events on Bougainville.
opening its doors in 1987, Ross House has become an important part of the fabric of Melbourne. The organisations operating from Ross House form an eclectic patchwork of multicultural groups, self-help groups and small community organisations committed to social justice and environmental sustainability. Organisations such as the International Women's Development Agency, Human Rights Arts and Film Festival and the Wilderness Society have all called Ross House home. To find out more, please visit rosshouse.org.au. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. Australia's most iconic bike riding holiday, the Great Vic Bike Ride, is on from Saturday 26th of November to Sunday 4th of December. This rolling bike festival will have you pedalling along the beautiful Great Ocean Road, through the Otways and Golden Plains. Tickets include all meals, a camping spot, luggage transfers, daily entertainment and more. Sign up at www.greatvic.com.au Use promo code 3CR to get 10% off. Great Vic Bike Ride, a 3CR supporter. The much anticipated Brazil runoff second round election has resulted in a narrow victory for former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, known as Lula over the incumbent, Jaya Bolsonaro. Yesterday I spoke with activist, author and journalist Fred Fuente. Fred, lots to discuss with the results, but can I begin with the margin for Lula? 1.8%, the closest margin of victory for any candidate since the return of democracy to the country in 1985, and that followed two decades of military rule. Is that small margin a cause for concern? It definitely is a cause for concern for a number of reasons because we need to look beyond just the close result but also the fact that in in the first round, the sort of parties and candidates aligned with former President Jair Bolsonaro, uh, who certainly is on the the far right of the political spectrum, uh, his supporters and candidates did very well, uh, so much so that they are pretty much the largest bloc in Congress and control about half of the governorships across Brazil, including some of the larger ones. Even if Bolsonaro did not win, what he was able to achieve through this election campaign was to consolidate Bolsonarismo uh, as, as a political movement uh, that is certainly not, not going away anytime soon. As I said, a movement associated with far-right politics, with uh, uh, authoritarianism, uh, a movement uh, identified with destruction of the Amazon rainforest, of denial when it came to the COVID pandemic. Uh, so this is, you know, certainly a, a, a serious threat that the, the new Lula Workers' Party government is going to have to contend with. Well, just how bad has the destruction of the Amazon been? You read that climate scientists have hailed the victories as a result for humanity and life itself. To your knowledge, how bad was Bolsonaro? I think the positive thing, look, in terms of going forward, is that there is a strong sense of that we won. Even though it was a close vote, at the end of the day, you win with 50% plus one of the vote. 
Peace did get out onto onto the streets in the, in the second round of the election campaign, did come out to vote, even as we, you know, there were certainly indications that Bolsonaro was trying to use in particular the, the federal police, which he has quite a sort of uh, stronghold over to sort of block people being able to go and vote and stuff like that. But despite all the obstacles put in people's ways and despite all the sort of institutional power that Bolsonaro had as the incumbent, they were able to essentially do a, a, a kind of a historic vote in the sense of voting out an, an incumbent president. In that sense, there's, there's a real sentiment that what, what occurred was an important democratic triumph of the people. Of course, it was probably fair to say it was more a defensive one. You know, it, it was one that was successful in stopping Bolsonaro being re-elected, but it's still going to have to work now working out what, what happens next. And, of course, all these issues of the Amazon to do with the economy, because, of course, Brazil is not uh, removed from the sort of world economic situation and, uh, and the, the situations we're facing, you know, across all, all countries around the world of rising unemployment, in, inflation. Uh, all of these are now going to have to be dealt with by the Lula government. But as I said, it does, does so firstly in a very difficult situation because Bolsonarismo has consolidated its power in Congress and at the level of governors, but also because in order to obtain that victory that Lula did, he, he had to make a lot of uh, electoral alliances, a lot of deals uh, with what, you know, the sort of traditional centre party, uh, parties that would be to the right of, of the Workers' Party, of Lula's uh, party. So, you know, now, now becomes, of course, the, uh, where people ask for their favours back to moderate Lula's policies, even though Lula's policies themselves weren't even tremendously radical to start with. It's all going to be part of that challenge. And you also have to take into account that Bolsonaro still has two months to run as president. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's uh, the, the inauguration is not until uh, January 2021, around around that time. So, of course, Bolsonaro will be absolutely using that time, you know, to see what, what he can do to create a, a bit more sort of institutional uh, crisis as, as he leaves. What seems at the moment pretty clear is that, that, you know, there won't be any type of attempted coup or something, as, as people were talking about before the election, uh, even though Bolsonaro has... At best, meekly, if that accepts the results, most of his or a lot of his cabinet, including his vice president, have accepted the results. So, yeah, I think we will see a, a transition, but I, I doubt it will be an, an orderly one. I'm sure there will be a number of surprises between now, now and January. Well, we've talked about the impact of the deforestation policies of Bolsonaro, whether it be mining, farming. But what about the Indigenous peoples who live in the, the Amazon, and I would imagine that there's a number of them who have been forced out. It was a huge issue under Bolsonaro, where we saw a, a rise in the number of Indigenous activists, environmental activists uh, being killed. Uh, but we should also, at the same time, not, not, not pretend that a lot of that stuff didn't also happen when the PT were in government. Of course, the difference was that the PT government, unlike Bolsonaro, was not you know, officially endorsing and backing and, and giving cover to, to those assassinations. But but they still occurred. Destruction of the Amazon didn't occur at the same rate, but it still occurred. So these are still big challenges where, you know, whilst Lula and the Workers' Party have made certainly noises and, and made good noises about it, you know, presented some ideas about policies about how to deal with this issue. Uh, it, it's going to be a very difficult one. And in particular, we know that, you know, one of the areas, a particular stronghold for Bolsonarismo is some of these sort of rural areas, regional areas, uh, perhaps not so much amongst indigenous populations, but amongst other communities that live in those areas, that Bolsonaro vote was, was pretty high. So I think we're going to continue to see a high level of, of tension in, in those areas. One important consequence surely must be the, the number of people who died from COVID the people who became ill and probably still remain ill, 
and how it's impacted on communities and families throughout Brazil? Well, certainly on the one hand, it did. You know, um, there's no doubt about it. Brazil was one of the, the hardest hit in terms of sort of per capita death that occurred during the COVID pandemic. But in some ways, that sort of uh, makes it, I mean, remarkable is probably not the right word, but, you know, sort of, you know, then you, you consider that despite that, that Bolsonaro was still able to get 49% of the vote. Okay, so certainly for some people, they sort of viewed COVID in different light, even though I'm sure that many of the people who would have voted for Bolsonaro uh, had family members or relatives or, or, or friends who, who died as a result of, of the pandemic. Because one thing that Bolsonaro tried to sell was the fact that uh, because he hadn't locked down many of the other countries, that Brazil economically wasn't as hit hard by the pandemic. And that was a, a sort of an argument that hit that, that certainly struck a chord, at least with a section of the population, that partly helps to explain why, despite that massive death toll, he was still able to get the kind of vote that he did. But, um, but of course, these issues are, are not going to go away. I mean, Brazil's healthcare system, it's certainly deteriorated un, under Bolsonaro, but it, it wasn't particularly perfect beforehand. You know, there was still a lot of, lot of work to, to be done in that area. And so these, these are the challenges that the Lula government is going to have, except if it comes back into government, having been out of power for roughly about six years, uh, the Workers' Party, Lula a bit longer, but uh, Dilma, who's then followed him in power, was uh, in power until 2016. So coming back after about six years uh, out of power, I mean, a very different situation. As I said, a situation where have got a, a, a much more stronger far right in the, in the, in the form of the Bolsonaro uh, movement. The, the, the progressive forces are much more on the, on the defensive than, than they were uh, at least, you know, 10 years ago. And the economic situation is quite different. You don't have any of the commodity booms that a lot of the progressive governments 10, 15 years ago benefited from. The economic situation is quite different for, for Lula to deal with. So it's going to be a very complex situation. And, and as you've noted, that yeah, even just the next two months of the transition, is even that's unlikely to, to go from an orderly fashion. We're sure there'll be some surprises. Well, when Lula comes into power, where can he rely on for the economy? This is the big issue that they, that they face because, as I said, they don't have the commodity boom that existed previously where they're able to make quite a lot of money from the exports. They've got a lot of legislation that's been introduced under the Bolsonaro government, essentially sort of mandating restrictions on being able to spend money on social spending. And these are not going to be easily overturned because Lula doesn't have the sort of, you know, the numbers in the Congress. Certainly the Workers' Party doesn't. So any, any legislation that Lula wants to pass requires having to form alliances and, and the alliances aren't there in terms of progressive parties. Uh, all the alliances in, in order to pass legislation are going to have to run through the, the centre and in some cases even sort of the traditional right to, to overturn these legislation. So it's, it's not going to be an easy situation, but of course it's not, not impossible at the same time. I think the, the real challenge is that the Workers' Party Lula government is going to have to first consolidate itself in front of a, you know, what is called you know, a very divided country, of course, be able to present itself as, as the legitimate government, much like a bit like what's happened in the US, you know, where there's still a certain section of the population, although a minority, but not, not an insignificant minority, who still question whether Biden is a legitimate president or not, or, you know, and Trump continues to play that up. I'm sure Bolsonaro will continue to, to do a similar thing as well, using his power in the institutions, in the terms of the Congress and the governorships, to cause issues, to cause problems with the central government. And what Lula's going to have to do is turn that around and say, no, no, actually we are the democratically elected majority. We are governing for the policies that, that, that we represented. And try 
try and see what they can do to at least get some runs on the board uh, early on. I think that's going to be very crucial to sort of consolidating the legitimacy of the government, uh, which, as I said, will, will certainly be contested, uh, even if it's not going to be a, a majority or even a, a large minority who necessarily don't see the government as legitimate. There, there will be an important part of the population and it, all, all the way into the institutions that very much question it. Well, as you said, it's a huge country and there are different interests in all different parts of the country and somehow he's got to bring all that together. The question is how. So, yeah, in order for the government really to survive or to be able to implement its own sort of policies, it's going to have to do that. Now, I think that's where the debate comes in because there's certainly a very strong, uh, what would you call it, wing or tendency within the government, within the Workers' Party and which probably includes Lula as well, I would say, who believes that the way to do that is through uh, electoral pacts and alliances with traditional forces, with traditional media outlets, try and sort of work with the, the centre of politics and the traditional political class to view the Bolsonaro experience as a sort of a blip, as a detour away from, you know, what was the status quo and, and, and the Lula government as a return to the status quo. Going down that road, though, may, Lula may find himself in, in a big problem, and, and that is that you can't just explain Bolsonaro's vote by imagining that 49.05% of resource population is now, you know, far-right fascist. Yes, there is a, a historic tendency, uh, you know, that dating back to the military dictatorship with certain views, you know, all that, that is present, but that's not the majority of Bolsonaro's voters. In fact, much of Bolsonaro's voters is people completely disgusted and discontented with the status quo and who view Bolsonaro as an outsider, as a challenge to that status quo. This is where it's sort of more left-wing sectors are saying, well, actually, yeah, like what Lula has to do is, is, is rather than seek compromise with the centre, is, is set the agenda, much like Bolsonaro actually did when he was in government. Yeah, he set the agenda and forced everyone to respond. Lula has to be able to, to try and do that, try to really build on that sort of enthusiasm that's been created by this electoral victory and convert that then into enthusiasm for the, for the government and the policies that it's implemented rather than simply just viewing this as just like some kind of return to the status quo. Because as I said, it's, no doubt things got worse under Bolsonaro over the last four years, but it's not like they were all pretty good and everyone was happy prior to Bolsonaro. In fact, that's precisely why Bolsonaro gets elected because of, because of that, what, it, you know, what Brazil was like prior to his election. What about support for Lula? from other Latin American countries, particularly those in South America? In that regard, Lula you know, has a lot in, in his favour. I mean, firstly, you know, pretty much every country in the region was extremely quick to come out and, and recognise his, his victory and, and the vote. That was quite important because uh, obviously in a different scenario, had government sort of started to question the vote, might have given legitimacy to, to Bolsonaro's claims, but no, no, one, no one did that. So that, that's important. And secondly does so in a context where, if you look at it, the largest five economies in the region are all governed by what you could call left, progressive, centre-left governments, uh, Mexico, Chile, Argentina, uh, Colombia, and, and now Brazil. There's certainly a, a working block of governments there that Lula is able to, to work with. Put him in a, in, in a better stead than it would be had, had we had a particularly traditional right-wing government as we've had before in, in some of these countries. And as you said last time we spoke, Biden won't be particularly unhappy to see Bolsonaro go? I think, I think that's the case. I mean, of course, you know, uh, probably if Biden had a choice of his own presidential candidate, it would have been neither Lula nor, nor Bolsonaro, given that stark choice. Uh, I think there's no doubt that a Biden administration preferred a Lula government. The defeat of Bolsonaro in some ways represents a continuation of the defeat of Trump and Trumpism and that style of politics. 
you know, in that sense, there's this, this sense of like across the region, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, right-wing populist menace is going away. And as, as I've said, of course, it, I, I don't think it is, certainly not in Brazil, you know, not, not when Bolsonaro wins 49% of the vote and controls Congress and, and has them a, a, a half of the governance. It's not going away, but there's at least, on the one hand, he's trying to sense of, create this image that it, that it has been defeated, that, it, that it's going to go away. But also, as I said, like, Lula didn't exactly promise the most radical program and has already made clear that he sees the way forward in terms of consolidating the, the electoral victories by moderating needing food further to, to his centre, you know, to the right wing, to the parties to his right. And that's certainly where Biden would like to see Lula move. So I think in that regard, it seems pretty clear that whilst I'm sure that there'll be issues that come up, and certainly one thing Biden won't be particularly happy with is Lula taking up basically the, the foreign policy that the PT government had previously of seeking to strengthen the regional unity, um, that is South American and, and Latin American unity for creations of institutions like the Union of South American Nations, the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, something that Bolsonaro had withdrawn Brazil from, but I'm sure Lula will reinsert Brazil into it. Those things are not going to be of, of the greatest liking of Biden, but also I think Biden's pretty confident that, for instance, Lula is not going to withdraw Brazil from the organization of American states and pose a fundamental challenge to the US in the region. I think it's going to be more a, a jostling for, for sort of power and a sort of a a staking out of certain claims um, by the PT government, and then we'll see. We'll have to see, of course, how how that goes. What about his choice for running mate, a right winger? Some say that was a mistake. Was it? I think that fits in into to what I've been saying. That that Lula has, you know, believed that the way to electoral victory, and not just to electoral victory, but to some kind of unity that could provide a basis for governability, was seeking towards the traditional political class. So, you know, he, his running mate was essentially a candidate who'd run against him in a previous presidential election, a former governor of, of Sao Paulo, uh, a person very much linked to the banking sector. What Lula was trying to say is, oh, look, you, you can trust me. Uh, and as I said, look, that obviously, I mean, for Biden, that's a, a good signal. For big business in, in Brazil, that might be a good signal. But for many ordinary Brazilians who remember what life was like before Bolsonaro, before the, you know, that remember, well, not exactly a, a, a thing to fill, fulfill people with, with excitement. So this, this is that tension that sort of exists at the moment. Uh, and, you know, we'll look through over time, but we use this tension of where there is a real push by the Workers' Party by Lula to, to sort of seek governability through a, a rapprochement through a consensus with, with the centre and the traditional political class. But I think that's a, a dangerous game, um, which is precisely the game that sort of in, in many ways helps Bolsonaro uh, rise to power in the first place. I'm quoting now from a Brazilian journalist who told The Guardian that he believes that Bolsonaro is clearly afraid of prison. The Guardian also noted that After leaving power, Bolsonaro could find himself exposed to a multitude of possible investigations and charges relating to fake news, anti-democratic behaviour, alleged corruption and his handling of a pandemic which killed nearly 700,000 Brazilians. Is that a possibility that he could go to jail? There's a couple of factors at play here. Like, obviously, we've still got the, the, the transition to happen. So I've got no doubt that Bolsonaro will try to use this period of time to try to sort of guarantee himself over and above the normal immunity that sort of politicians have because, of course, you know, the politicians are always treated as a different class when it, when it comes to the, to the judicial system. Um, moves and, and rightfully so uh, by the by the PT government by the judiciary to investigate 
the, the actions of, of Bolsonaro in power and also his links with corruption. Whether they succeed or not is, is a different question. But as I said, there will be, certainly there'll be the hurdles in the judicial system. The judicial system is far from being the, the fairest, you know, I mean, it's the judicial system that put Lula in prison, uh, in order so he couldn't run in the last election, only for then the charges to, to be dropped and for the, the judge who had jailed Lula to become a minister in, in Bolsonaro's government. So, you know, there's obviously issues there in the judicial system. But I'm sure there'll be legislative hurdles that are put in place. What the, the far right or the, the, the Bolsonaro movement will have to work out is how crucial is Bolsonaro the, as a figure to their movement. And I, I think they're going to see that they don't really want to, to cut him loose just yet. So there will be attempts, but it's not, it's not going to be easy. It's going to have to overcome some, some pretty big institutional hurdles. Yeah, on the plus side, there's going to be a lot of popular support for, for that kind of action, particularly if the more evidence can be exposed of the realities of Bolsonaro's actions will we'll play a crucial part in isolating and undermining the Bolsonarismo as a, as a political movement. Just finally, Fred, how do you compare this result of Lula with recent victories of the left or centre-left in other parts of South America? There's two important trends that, that happen, and of course, one of those things, how do you see a glass half empty, glass half full? But what we've seen in, in a lot of the recent elections, you know, if we just take uh, the three most probably recent elections, which were Chile, Colombia and, and Brazil, is on the one hand, you, you do see a elections of whatever you want to call them, centre-left, left, progressive government coming to power. In the, in the case of Chile, like a, a new left, so it's not, it's not the traditional sort of equivalent of the Labour Party being elected there. It's, it's, a, it's a new formation that's formed to the left of them. In Colombia, historic victory, where the left hadn't been in power for decades. And then in Brazil, you know, the Workers' Party, which had previously been in government, but, but now returning to, to power after, after six years in, in the opposition. You have that on the one hand, but the, the other side of the, the equation is that in all three of those elections, it was not the traditional right-wing party or right-wing candidate that was the main challenger, but in fact, candidates to the right of the right. So you had, in Chile's case, Taft, uh, who represented the more explicitly sort of pro-Pinochet right. Uh, you had a, a, a businessman who had essentially become a, a local mayor and through populist programs had created a certain image of himself, basically ran as an outsider and went made into the second round, defeating the traditional parties and, and came close to, to winning the final election. And Bolsonaro, again, you know, fits into, into that category, even though it's true he was in Parliament for 30 years, but you know, no one even noticed him there. But all of a sudden, he you know, just presented himself as being against the political class and even against the, the traditional right. Those two competing tendencies... The electoral victories on the one hand have been extremely important because they have put a halt to the event. I mean, I think, I think we'd be looking at a much more dangerous situation in the region if, if you know, only a few percentage points had voted the other way in those three countries. We weren't that far away from having interviews talking about, you know, a string of far-right candidates governing in three of the four largest economies in South America. Thankfully, we're not there. Yeah, I think there is also a sense that much of that vote was a, was a defensive vote, not like the sort of periods that we had with the previous left governments, progressive governments in the region, but with governments elected on the back of mass protests and strikes and, and in some cases uprisings that are for presidents. In this case, you know, these, these, these elements of the right wing are, are too much for us as a society, so we need to block them. But then, you know, we have to see what, where, where does it go from there? How, how does the left deal with its newfound power or its newfound positions in government? And, of course, 
we've seen, for instance, in Chile, that it's not an easy course, uh, where they expected to easily win the new constitution in the referendum and instead suffered a, a big electoral defeat in, in that referendum. So there's those challenges of, you know, how to convert uh, an electoral mandate into an ongoing social mandate of the people for, for progressive policies. Uh, but as I said, the, the positive thing, certainly I think, um, is far right that, that their advance has been halted in, in those three elections. And I've been speaking with Fred Fuentes, who's an author, journalist and activist for Latin America. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.